Oh, how many remember this time last year, kind of where we were at? Wasn't that something? It was right about this time last year that we were having those daily news conferences, and some people were really optimistic about a vaccine. They were like, oh, we got the best, we got the absolute best scientists in the world working on this. Maybe a year, nine months, maybe by the end of the year. Some people were optimistic. Others were like, yeah, I don't really see that happening for about a year and a half. Uh, maybe, maybe, a year, maybe two years, but uh, you remember that whole deal? And we all, I don't know if you were like me, but I was like, I hope the one that was optimistic is right about this. I'm like hoping for that vaccine to come along. And sure enough, you know, here we are a year later and we've had the vaccines out for a while now. And there's what, close to 80 million people uh, in the U.S. alone that have been vaccinated. That's, that's pretty good. But you know, the funny thing, it's still controversial to talk about vaccines. I mean, I see some of you like, I don't talk. People, people receive good news different ways, right? And let's face it, you know, some of us are like old and we're like, give me the vaccine, I'll take it, sure, whatever, you know. It, it, I could grow a third foot at this point, I'll still take the vaccine because I'm old, right? And then there's people that are like, yeah, I, I think I'd, I'd do better just getting the disease than taking the risk of the vaccine. And, and what that comes down to is that some people... Uh, some people have trust in different things. Some people have a different level of comfort with where the science is at this point and so on and so forth. But let's talk about the ultimate good news, not, not the good news of a vaccine, but the good news. Isn't it funny how scripturally we can talk about things in categories like that with the uh, definite article, um, like the Bible. Do you know what Bible from the Greek word biblos means? book. What book are you talking about? The book. But what book? The book, you know. What's the good news? The good news is the good news, aka gospel, because gospel means good news. But when the gospel comes, what do you do with it? What do you do with it? And of course, just like with the vaccine, some people react one way and they're really positive toward it. Other people are skittish about it. And uh, so that's what we want to talk about today. The gospel is here. The gospel is here, now what? Now what, what are you going to do with it? So here, we're gonna to talk today about what you do or ought to do, scripturally speaking, with the gospel. Eight point sermon, so hunker down. Um, did you bring snacks to keep the blood sugar up? What are you saying, pastor? Just, just hang with me. Okay, first of all, you need to hear the gospel. You need to hear the gospel. How often does Jesus say in the gospels? That's confusing because we got gospels about the gospel. Uh, but in the gospels, what does he always say about hearing? He who has uh, ears, let him hear. Yeah, let him hear. Let him listen. Recall we're in that section of Acts where we're talking about the events of Pentecost. Let me just really recapture that just for a moment. You recall that there are about 120 disciples all together there and the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them and then the people who have come from all over the world hear and respond to the message. Last time we looked at Peter's explanation of the events because that was their question. Remember, some scoffed, but others were like, what does this mean? And he tells them what it means. And there was kind of three pieces, real quickly, just a reminder of what it was all about. He's like, first of all, okay, so here's what's happening. This is the Old Testament context. This is the prophecy. People like Joel, people like uh, Isaiah, Ezekiel foretold this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That's what you're seeing now. Jesus, who's been exalted, has sent the Holy Spirit now, and this is what you're witnessing. And then he says, and then there's Jesus. You know him. He's the one you had crucified. 
But he's risen, he, he lives, he's exalted, he's risen into heaven. And then he puts the two together, he goes, and he sent this. This is what you're seeing. You're witnessing this Old Testament prophecy of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and it's because of Jesus. And the whole package of this is, is really persuasive. On so many levels, it, it's hugely persuasive. But then the question is, well, what are you gonna do about it? Look at verse 37, we pick it up there. It says, now when they heard this, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Before these Jewish men from all over the world responded, it says they heard. They heard. You say, well, I think you're making a lot out of just one word. I think it's a significant and important word given what we're talking about. They are not of those who scoffed and said they're drunk. At least the way you read it, it sure sounds as though there were those who scoffed, uh, said they're drunk, and just would have walked off. Like, yeah, I'm not going to deal with that. I'm not going to look at it. I don't want to hear it. But then there are those who didn't scoff, who said, what does this mean? And, and they, they're tuned in. They're listening. The first thing you have to do with the gospel is you have to hear it. Now, Paul makes that point in Romans chapter 10, doesn't he? But then he says, well, how will they hear unless someone goes? And then that, that puts the responsibility on us that we have to at least tell the gospel. Yes, Christian, you're aware of that. Again, big responsibility, it's on us. We're like a watchman sent on a tower. We have, to, we have to tell the story, it's on us to tell it. But the one to whom it comes, has, he has to, or she, has to listen. That's job number one, they have to hear, and the responsibility is on them. If it is being brought to them, they have to listen, and they have to do something with it at great cost. I get that there are things in this world a person doesn't want to hear. You don't want to hear the movie ending before you've seen the movie. Amen? By the way, Bruce Willis was dead the whole time. Yeah, I kind of ruined it for you there, didn't I? It's a 20-year-old film, come on. Um, yeah, if you tape the game... And, and you don't want somebody to tell you the end of the game, before, but you, you, know, you, you don't tell me, don't tell me, I don't want to know, I don't want to know. Um, but on the other hand, you know, if, if, if your name is Tarkin, I don't know if that's a first or last name. All right, Star Wars geeks, you're already with me, right? So if, you're, if your name's Tarkin and one of your underlings comes to you and says, we've analyzed the rebel attack, sir, and uh, you maybe want to get your escape pod ready because there is a chance they could blow up the Death Star. You should probably listen to that guy. Yeah? If, if your name is Custer, happens to be Custer, and, and your Native American scouts say to you, there's like several thousand warriors on the other side of this ridge, you might want to listen to them. If you're the captain of the Titanic, never mind, I'm, you get where I'm going with that, right? The first responsibility is to listen, and there are things you don't want to hear, but there are things that you absolutely need to listen to. You need to hear the gospel. Secondly, let it cut to your heart. Let it, let it cut to your heart. Let it move you. We tend to naturally avoid um, letting certain things get to our heart. And we learn that at a young age. Did you hit your sister? Well, um, I don't know. I want to say yes. But when I see you holding that paddle and that glint in your eye, I'm gonna go with no and see, see how I come out with that, right? We, we learn at that, that early age, we, we don't want to admit 
fault because it comes with penalty. And, and the last thing Peter has said to them when we looked last time was, whom you crucified. Whom you crucified. This is like that moment when you're talking to your spouse and your spouse says to you, you, you hurt me. You harmed me. I'm not going to get over this easily. So what do you feel at that moment? Men especially. But you comes the other way from women, for you women as well, right? It can work two ways. It just works dominantly the one direction. Huh? What, do you, what do you feel at that moment he or she says, you have hurt me? There's part of you that just wants to, to, to build up a wall. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brother, apostles brothers, what shall we do? Now, when we preach the gospel today, we are not telling the gospel to anyone in quite the same situation. These people that were hearing this, probably in many cases, it's only 50 days after, so many of them may have been part of that crowd that was crying out to crucify him. They're they're very close to this. The sin is like literally theirs and upon their, if nothing else, it's upon the very people, the very generation in which they are living. It's like you crucified them and they hear this. But, having said that, that, are we not in a similar situation, a similar circumstance? Why was Jesus put to death? Ultimately, not why why his enemies at that moment put him to death, but why was he put to death? What does Peter tell us? 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins. Just that abstract idea of sins, right? No, for sins. Whose sins? Your sins and my sins. He was put to death. He suffered for that. The righteous for the unrighteous. We were the unrighteous to bring us to God, being put to death. Why? Because of, what we, because of our sins in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Look at what Isaiah says before this ever happened, Isaiah chapter 53. One of the great prophecies in the Old if you want to know, does the Old Testament speak about Jesus? Absolutely. Isaiah 53 is ground zero. It says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. Whose transgressions? Ours. He was crushed for our iniquity. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So for the gospel to save a person, on some level our hearts have to, not, not only do we have to hear with our ears, but our hearts have to be tender. There has to be the moment where, that, where our defenses come down and we hear and we less listen and it, and it breaks through and we're able to see that yes, in fact, we, we are guilty before him. Then you must be ready to respond. You must be ready to respond. They ask, what shall we do? This doesn't happen often enough, married people. Yes, but... In that, in that same situation where someone says, you hurt me, where our tendency is to say, you know what, I, don't, I, I see the glint in your eye and the paddle in your hand and I don't really want to admit that I've hurt you at all because that comes with, with consequences. Um, there can be that really wonderful moment in a relationship where the person says, I get it. I get it, I have. I see that, I see that what I have done has, has really actually hurt you. And that's a, that's a breakthrough, isn't it? 
You're like, wow, I'm waiting for that to happen one of these days, right? Um, But no, that is a breakthrough when the person is willing to say, you know, at the cost, at the potential cost of what's going to come my way here, I'm going to admit it, and I'm going to ask you, what what do I do? Tell me what what I can do to make things right. I I want us to be reconciled, so tell me what I need to do. That is a huge moment, isn't it? Pastor John loves the movie Warrior. Has anybody seen that movie? Yeah, a few of you. John puts up his hand. That makes sense. <laughs> he also brought the DVD with him and loaned it to me, so I'll probably see it someday. Um, but for, he's, he's told me about it many occasions. So you got this guy, uh, Nick Nolte, right? John Nick Nolte plays a, a, a dad who just was a lousy father. I don't know the whys and wherefores. I'm guessing alcoholic maybe. Just a really rotten rotten so-and-so and And, uh, so later in life he has a change of heart and he's trying to come back and kind of enter his son's lives and uh, and the one son is like yeah I don't want you as a dad uh, but I'll take you as a trainer for MMA for you know because you're because you're good at that you know as far as dad son not really interested but I'll, I'll let you in he gives him a window of mercy just a little tiny window of mercy he goes to the other son the other son's like you you and I will never speak again. There won't be, there's nothing going on between you and me and there never will be and you're never gonna talk to your grandchildren. It's over. There's, there's nothing, nothing for you there. What's beautiful about the gospel is unlike human relationships where someone that you've hurt may literally say to you with that glint in their eye, there's nothing you can do. I don't care if you live to be a thousand There's nothing in all the world, in all eternity, that you could ever do that would make up to me what you have done to me. Unlike that, when we come to God, no matter what we have done, if if we know ourselves to be sinners and we reach out to him through the gospel, we know he sent his son into the world to die for his enemies, to reconcile them to himself. But, having said that, what do we do with the gospel? Well, Not only do we have to hear it, not only does it have to pierce our heart, but we have to be ready to respond accordingly. God, what would you have me do? What would you have me do? And the answer is, you must repent. You must repent. Peter said to him, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, we've talked about repentance before, but repentance is is pretty simple stuff on one level. It means to turn. In the Old Testament, the word, the Hebrew word was shuv. I don't know a lot of my Hebrews still, but that was one that I hung on to. It means means to turn. And some people will look at the New Testament Greek word and think that it means something almost altogether different. It really doesn't. It imports a lot of that idea from the Hebrew, that idea of of turning, of turning. In the New Testament, conversion, that is coming to Christ, can either be mentioned as repentance or believing. Sometimes it, it will say uh, repent and believe the gospel. Sometimes it will say repent. Sometimes it will say believe. They're all intricately woven together. When you turn from your sin, when you turn from that old way of life, your old pursuit, your own idea about what was, you know, all we like sheep have gone astray, each has turned to his own way. When we come to that place of repentance, we turn from those things, and in turning, we turn toward 
Jesus Christ and we believe in him. Peter calls on those who crucified Jesus to see their sin and to repent, to turn from it and turn to Jesus. They have to change their heart and mind with regard to him. Paul put this succinctly in Acts chapter 20. Let me show you that. This is Paul describing what his appeal was with the gospel. When he brought the gospel, this is, this is what he called people to do. Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So do you see both of those there as, as they're woven together in Paul's understanding of the gospel? He called everyone to repent, to turn, to turn from their sin to God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot have true unrepentant faith. Let me say it again. Let, let you try that on. See where I'm going with that. You cannot have genuine unrepentant faith. It's a contradiction in terms. Unfortunately, it is an idea that's afloat out there in some circles. And, I, and I, Yeah, some people will say, and I think it's ludicrous, uh, obviously, but um, there's some people that will say, look, repentance, that's an Old Testament idea. And that was for the Jewish people. And you come into the you know, New Testament and then you look at Acts chapter two and they're still talking to Jewish people so they're told to repent. But then the Gentiles, they only have to believe. And that is just, I'm sorry, that just doesn't hold up to the scripture. Faith and repentance are woven together. They're, they're two halves of the same coin. You see that in Acts chapter 20. Paul didn't say, well, I preached repentance to the Jews and I preached faith to the Gentiles. He says, I preached this, that same interwoven idea of a repentant faith to both of them. If you come to the place where you see the truth regarding Jesus Christ, where it has pierced your heart and you are ready to respond, then, then the way you respond is to repent and believe the gospel. You let go. You let go of what. It doesn't mean you clean yourself up. And make, so some people misunderstand this. I've heard people say this, those that are detractors of the idea of repentance. Uh, they'll say, well, you're saying that a person has to make themselves good enough before they can have salvation, before they. No. No, I'm not saying that at all. You can't make yourself good enough for God. Repentance, though, is turning and realize, uh, from everything that you were trusting in, from what you believed in, from what you trusted in, from what you thought was worthy and good and your sin and your idolatry and everything else consciously that, that is going away from God and it is turning in faith and believing in Jesus Christ and, and receiving that, that offer that, that he holds out to us. Scripture, it, it, you, can, you can express it either way. You can even talk about faith in the same way because if you talk about faith, what is it to put faith in Jesus Christ? Is it not looking at the way you've been going, what you've been loving, what you've been worshiping, essentially you've been worshiping yourself and you've been loving your sin. Isn't faith that moment where you realize that that is all just like refuse? compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ? Is it, is it not that turn from the one to the other? And the answer is yes, you must repent, but repentance and faith are intertwined. Yeah? Good? Okay. And you must be baptized. Preachers sometimes pronounce baptized, baptized, okay? For emphasis. Um, sorry, that. Uh, this too... Baptism, that is, is a right response. He says, repent 
and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be baptized? I think we all think we know that, and we probably have a, an inkling or a, a decent idea when people come down on different, different sides of when and who to baptize and in what order and all those things. We get, the, the thing that should really bring the church together, baptism is the thing that has divided the church more than about anything that I can think of, but yeah. Um, what, what did the Jewish people understand when he said to them, just remember, Jewish audience, devout Jews from all over the world, they, they have no training in Christianity whatsoever. What did they understand when he says you must be baptized in the name of Jesus? Well, the funny thing was, the Jewish people did, at that time, have baptism. It was not for Jewish people, per se. John the Baptist was unique and unusual in the way that he took baptism and said to the Jewish people, you need to repent and be baptized. Because they had only used it for pagans. When a pagan wanted to become Jewish, not only did they have to go through circumcision, but they had to go through various kinds of baptism, and it was viewed as sort of a way of cleansing. I mean, it was, it was a ritual, it was very ritualistic, it was very external, but the idea was is that they were cleansing themselves in a way so that they could be acceptable to Yahweh and be brought into the covenant. So when Peter tells them to be baptized in the name, name of the Lord Jesus, he's saying, you need to see your uncleanliness, your moral pollution. Yeah, you thought that was only for pagans, but no, in our sin, we are, we are separated from God. They needed to see their sinfulness, and then they needed to see that it was in the name of Jesus, and in that name alone that there was merit and that there would be mercy. It is only through the sufficiency of Jesus. It is only that name, the only name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That was all kind of tied up in how he understood baptism. Now, baptism as an external rite does not work some magical thing. Baptism instead was a public profession of faith in Jesus Christ and of one's need for him. It was a public identification with Christ. There are two dangers with baptism. Well, three if you count the possibility of drowning. It's a very low likelihood. In my entire ministry, I've drowned one person, and that was really their fault. So it's very rare that, no, it's easy. There's two main dangers, two main dangers, which you may already kind of anticipate where I'm going to go with this. But the first one is just to minimize the importance of baptism. And, and some people that do that, many Christians are just too willing to dispense with it. Probably, mostly, most of the time, it's because they rightly want to preserve the idea of salvation by grace through faith alone. And if you get around certain people who overemphasize baptism, I'll guarantee you, you will start pulling the other way. It's like a pendulum. The people that take baptism make it too important. It causes a lot of other people who are clinging to the idea of grace. It's by grace through faith alone. They don't want that, that idea of challenging that. And so they pull away to the point that there are whole denominations that don't even practice baptism. And they say, well, it's only, you know, it's only spiritual baptism that, um, that matters. Um, look, Here's the problem with that view. It's a command. Like a lot of other commands. Are we just at liberty to go, well, Christ commanded that, but yeah, I'm not gonna do it. No, no, Jesus commanded that we be baptized. Now, Paul makes it clear it's not the heart of the gospel. Baptism is, or is not. He says to the Corinthians, he goes, hey, I didn't come to baptize you. I came to, to preach the gospel to you. 
oh, I baptized a few of you, but really, it wasn't a big deal to me. I wasn't out to just do a bunch of baptism. I, was, I wanted you to hear the, the message of Christ and him crucified. And Peter, when he talks about baptism, ends up saying, you know, baptism now saves you not by an outward washing of the body, but by the pledge of a good, good conscience toward God. So it's not that outward external thing. The opposite end, don't make it into a work by which you are saved. Baptism is not the same as I hear people sometimes say, well, you need, you need repentance, then you need faith, then you need baptism, as if there's three things saving us. No, no, we are saved by grace through faith, that faith being a repentant faith. And baptism demonstrates that. Remember what, what Peter had said already. He said, all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus, all who call on the name of the Lord are saved. Baptism is that kind of external, I mean, for lack of a better word, ritual in water whereby a person identifies with Christ and calls on him. The one whom they've already called on, the one whom they've already received salvation from, they, they do that in a public way, calling upon him, professing their faith. If you have not been baptized, can I just say to you, there is no conceivable reason you shouldn't be baptized. If you're in faith, if, if you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no reason that you not be baptized. I can't imagine, and I know, I've known Christians that have wait, waited and put it off for all kinds of reasons, but, but there is no reason having come to this place of repentant faith and trusting in Christ, that you wouldn't be baptized. By the way, when it says, for the forgiveness of sins, I just want to explain that really quick, knock that down quickly and misunderstanding that, because some people will say, baptism saves you. Well, it's repentance and faith and baptism together that saves you, but you've got to be baptized in order to be saved. And they say, look, here it says, for the forgiveness of sins. Seems persuasive at first. Here's the funny thing. So in the Greek language, the little word for for there is the preposition ace. You don't need to remember that. But the interesting thing is that exact same word in the exact same accusative case is used when John the Baptist says, I baptize you for repentance. Now ask yourself this. Did John baptize them so they could get repentance? Doesn't even make sense, does it? What was he saying? I baptize you because you've repented. Your desire is that repentance and you want to make a public profession. And so to display your repentance, that act of repentance is going to be displayed in baptism. That act, that, that experience of God's forgiveness is shown forth in baptism. Yeah? Okay. Next, and be assured. And be assured. When they ask what they are to do, Peter tells them what it is, and that is to repent and be baptized. And then he gives them this assurance. First, they uh, can know that if they repent and believe that they will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Which gift of the Holy Spirit is he talking about there? Is it tongues or something like that? It's the Holy Spirit. It's just a weird way, for, it's a little odd for the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is the gift which is to say, the gift that is which consists of the Holy Spirit. He is the gift. And if they're in any doubt about whether they will um, receive him, not only do they have the previous statement, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, but they also have this in verse 39, for the promise, 
The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, to teach about assurance requires probably about a half dozen sermons, but I want you to see kind of a ground zero of assurance here in the text. Peter is saying quite clearly that a repentant believer, that's hopefully you, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And he tells them that this is God's promise to them. There is reason for that assurance. It is, it is first of all the promise, which is a universal promise, that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's rooted in that, but it's also rooted when he says, um, all whom the Lord calls. And I know some people get really bent out of shape and, and so worried, and I think it starts with a right desire and then it runs off the rails. There are people who look at this and, and, and they've trusted in Christ, but they look at it and they go, well, what if my faith isn't genuine? Which is a concern, like are, are there fruits of, of my faith? Here's the problem, if you only look at the fruits of your own faith for your assurance, how's that gonna go for you? Badly. <laughs> very, very, I'm not saying don't. I'm not saying don't incorporate that thought of looking and making sure you, that your, your faith is solid and that you're really trusting in Christ, making sure you're living in that repentant kind of faith. But somewhere in there, you gotta trust the promise. You say, well, well how do I know whether I'm called? Well, this is the order of things that, that this text and other texts tell us. First of all, in the sovereignty of God, he called you. How do you know he called you? because you trusted and believed and called on him. Yeah? Called, call, called. That's kind of how, how it runs. If you have called on the name of the Lord, if you repented, if you turned from sin, trusted in Christ, then you should have assurance. You should, at least you should have that very good, strong foundational moment uh, to go from. And you must escape destruction or flee. If you like the word flee, you can put that there instead, but you must flee or escape destruction. Remember Pilgrim's Progress? What's the very first move after he trusts in the Lord at the beginning? Some people find it hard to find where the moment of salvation is in that story, but it's at the very beginning, before he even takes off. What's the second thing he does? He gets away, right? He flees the city of destruction. He just runs, you know, yelling eternal life. He goes heading out, and he, and, he, and he flees that. And look what it says in verse 40. And with many other words, he, that is Peter, bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. The call of the gospel, among other things, is a call to escape the sinful destruction of this world as it is. Like Lot we are to recognize that we live in a corrupt world, in a world which is apart from Christ, and we are to flee it. When we take hold of the kingdom of God, we are at one and the same time fleeing from the world of, of corruption. It doesn't mean that we leave the physical world, we are in the world, we're not of the world, but it means that by all means and by any measure, we will lay this to heart that we are to flee sin and to flee those influences which would lead us into sin. So it's, it's sort of twofold. We're trying to get away from sin, but we're also trying to get, that, uh, get away from that generation that's pulling us down that corruption. By, your, by save yourself from this, he doesn't mean that we save our souls. 
That could be misunderstood, couldn't it? Save yourself from, no. What he's saying is get, rescue yourself out of this place, out of, out of this generation. Renounce wickedness. We should flee anything that corru- is corrupting. You know, the Bible says bad company corrupts what? Good morals. Corrupts good morals. I want to hasten to say one thing really quickly there. That does not mean you cannot enjoy life. And there are some, especially among young Christians, I see this at times, that, that they, they wrestle with this, well, where's the balance? And, and sometimes young Christians just get almost joyless because they're afraid that anything which brings them joy that's not specifically Bible reading and prayer must be of the devil and has to be renounced and they feel guilty every time they're happy. It's not what that's saying. It's not saying that at all. There are good things in this world. Sitting down with a good book and a hot cup of cocoa, not gonna kill you, right? Not gonna corrupt you. Unless it's Fifty Shades of Grey or something like that. You shouldn't be reading that, okay? I'm just going to say right now, that's, that's, not, that's not good. But, but I'm saying there are, there are you know, good music and, 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 and even it forms various forms of entertainment and so forth can be fine, can be restorative and rejuvenating and all that. What this is saying, though, is that we have a powerful enemy in this world. When the Bible speaks of the world, it's not speaking about the earth or the good things that God created. It's talking about that whole sort of human, you know, anti-God, yeah, spirit of the age that's, that's there. And saying, get away, get as far from that as you possibly can. If you have repented and believed and made that good profession of faith, then the goal is toward holiness. That's what it's saying. You, f- you flee sin you seek the Holy Spirit's work in your life that you might live a holy life that's pleasing to God. And that should not make you a sourpuss, right? It's joy. If, 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 if your faith leaves you always feeling morose, you're, there's something you're not getting, okay? Finally, be added to the church. You knew that was coming, didn't you? I didn't write the Bible, I hope you know that, so I didn't slip that in there out of nowhere. It says, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. What's the miracle of Pentecost? Is it the tongues? Is it the, is it the, the, rushing, the sound of that rushing wind? Is it, you know, all those things were miraculous, but this is the real miracle to me. Think about this. 120 of them. There were 120 of this ragtag group in, in that upper room praying, and then God does the miracle at Pentecost, and 3,000, it's, like it's like an explosion going off. What I want you to see is that little phrase, added, added. 3,000 were added. It's not that 3,000 people heard a good talk, like a good Ted's talk. Maybe that was the good first Ted's talk. You know, Peter has 10 minutes to, no, no. They didn't just go, oh, that was really enlightening and then go their separate ways. It says they were added to the church. They were baptized. They joined themselves to the church or were joined to it. For now, simply get the fact that their response to the gospel ended with them being counted among the believers as part of the church. When you respond to the gospel by faith, 
you are brought into the fellowship of believers. You are added to, you ready for this? We had the Bible, we had the good news, you get added to the church, yeah? We could speak of the mystical, you know, universal, sort of cosmic church. All those who will ever believe in Jesus Christ, ever have believed, whether they're dead or alive or yet to be born, all of those who will be included with him in heaven forever. That's, that's the church in that sort of cosmic sense, but here's the thing. You have to be added to a church if you're part of the church. That's, that's, the, that's the call. Christians are to join with other believers in fellowship. It's not an option. We're too used to options in this world. I was playing a video game with my mentee yesterday. Plug for the mentor program, in case you didn't note, note that. But he was teaching me a game he liked. I'd never played it before. And he's like, okay, well, let's get, let's get suited up here, you know. And he's got his avatar guy. And it's like, uh, this gun comes with 29 different options. I got to get that. And it's like, okay, I got, I got a handgun. It's got 35 options with it. And then he goes back and he gets a different helmet and different goggles. I'm like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like how many different options does this thing have? This is ridiculous. And that's kind of, I, I mean, we've just trained ourselves to this idea that everything has all of these, the, the, these options. And, uh, you know, um, here's, the, here's the bottom line. This is not part of the optional aspects of our faith. If you have trusted Christ, if you've repented and you have believed in him and, and, and you've followed it in baptism, the next order of business Logically, it would go in this order. You need to become part of a church. In the same way that you couldn't baptize yourself, you didn't baptize yourself, did you? I mean, you don't, you don't need the church technically to become a Christian. That's the weird thing. I mean, you sort of do, but you don't have to have the church right there at that moment. You can be in a hotel room with your Gideon Bible. Plug for the Gideons, Barry. Um, Love that. You know, many, you hear the stories of, from Gideon conferences and stuff, and they talk about you know, story after story. Somebody was just down on their luck, uh, near suicide, and they get the Gideon Bible out, and they start reading, and they're converted. Hallelujah. I hope they don't then think, well, I should get baptized, and then go try to do that in the bathtub, because it doesn't work. It doesn't say, baptize yourself. It says, be baptized. Who's going to do the baptism? The church. And then you are to be added. We need the people of God. If you are a believer in Christ, you need the people of God. How do you flee the corruption of this world? Oh, I'm just gonna try my best. (laughs) Yeah, good luck with that. Why did God give you the church? To help you flee from that corruption. Believers, this sermon and passage should confirm what you already know. Amen? No surprises, nothing hit you here really new, I I would hope. But maybe there is an area here somewhere where you look at it and you go, I have not really ever addressed this. Maybe, Maybe you repented, but you were not baptized. Get baptized. I don't know, can I say it in a different way? Not baptized, says to be baptized. Hmm, get baptized okay stop stalling there is no reason for that maybe you believed and you just really didn't comprehend repentance 
maybe somebody shared the gospel and said to you, I'll just, just, just believe in Jesus. Just believe in Jesus. And you took that to mean that you could add Jesus like something that you just put into the life you've got as it is right now. I've got my life like I've always had, and I put a little Jesus in there. And now you hear it, and you're like, wait, I was supposed to repent? I was supposed to flee the world? If, if, if that's where you're at, then take that, add that to what your understanding is. Repent, turn from those things. Seek to, to leave this crooked generation behind. Maybe you've done all of those things, but you've just never been added to a church. It's not optional. Any more than baptism is. We are called to be part of God's people. And it shouldn't just be that abstract or mystical people of God. It should be a local representation of the body of Christ. If you're not a believer, the promise is to all whom he calls. And you say, well, how do I know if he's calling? Do you hear the gospel today? Do you hear it? Are you listening? Or are you sticking your fingers in your ears going, oh, they're just drunk, they're just silly. Or has God opened your ears to hear? And if you have heard it, has it cut through to your heart? Are you, are you ready to respond? If you're ready to respond, we've made it pretty clear today what that response is. You turn. You've been going one way your whole life. You didn't even realize it was rebellion against God. You just were going your own way having your own idols, seeking your own pleasure, loving the things of this, this world and, and with no heart toward God. The Bible says you are without hope and without God in the world. But if you come to that place today where you see your sin and you see your need of rescue, then repent, repent. Believe in Jesus Christ. It's kind of like if you were going down with a sinking ship and there was a group of people that were there with, with a life raft. And we're like, jump, jump in. And you're like, no, I don't, I don't feel good about that decision. <laughs> and, you, and you got the white knuckles just clinging there to the side. And we're like, save yourself, jump, jump. The, the ship is going down. The ship is, is sinking, but you're, but you're too afraid to jump. Don't, don't, do not fear. Look to Jesus Christ, look to him, and if you see in him your great treasure and your great hope, then call upon him, and all, it says, who call on the name of the Lord will be saved and be added, and be added. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the fact that it has come to us, and how are we so blessed, Lord, that that we live in a land where the gospel is, is preached often and freely and, and in every corner. And yet with the hearing comes the responsibility to truly hear, to truly listen. And I pray, Lord, that even today, not only that you would have encouraged your people with a clearer understanding perhaps of the gospel or, or reminding them of something that they've maybe um, too long put off. Lord, there's this chance that, that someone here today might be listening and Lord that you might be dealing with them and I pray that that would be the case I pray that such a one would have their heart just broken and and opened and that they would see and be able to look at you and not see a glint in your eye and a paddle in your hand but that they might they might look to you and see the nail scars 
in your hand and your love for sinners and your ultimate payment that you gave on the cross for all, Lord, who call upon you. And I pray, Lord, that today they, they would abandon that sinking ship and, and flee and cast themselves wholly upon you and your saving work. And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen.